I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today, I'm speaking with Cindy Liao, co-founder of Drift, a decentralized derivatives exchange on Solana. Somehow, it's taken us 18 episodes to do a foundational episode on DeFi. But finally, here we are. DeFi is, in a word, complicated. I think most of us in crypto can give a high-level definition of DeFi, something like smart contracts that can execute financial transactions in a trustless way. But beyond that, understanding what's actually going on under the hood of DeFi protocols and how to use them is still a very narrow area of expertise. Part of what makes DeFi complicated is, by design, it's not vertically integrated. If you've got all your money in Chase, Bank of America isn't going to give you a loan unless you move your money to one of their accounts. But in DeFi, you trade on one DeFi protocol with funds collateralized on another and lend tokens out to users on a third. It's permissionless, integrated, but also messy. Wrapped assets, bridges, automatic market makers, all these are new financial tools foreign to the world of traditional finance. Cindy walks us through how these things work on both a technical and practical level. It's common to frame DeFi as a utopian solution to many of the problems of centralized finance. But, and I don't think I'm bursting anyone's bubble by saying this, DeFi is not without problems of its own. We discuss why information transparency, the hallmark of DeFi, hasn't made it more resilient to hacks and frauds, while weighing other security trade-offs between DeFi and CeFi, particularly around counterparty risk. Of course, we're pro-DeFi around here, but if we're trying to build a future of finance for a decentralized world, it's important to talk about the challenges the industry needs to overcome. From cross-chain DeFi to increased onboarding through better wallet infrastructure and account abstraction, there's a lot to look forward to in the next 12 months of DeFi. Let's get into it. Cindy, welcome to Validated. Hey, Austin. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so I want to jump right into things. How would you define DeFi and what is its role? We all kind of get the idea of there are smart contracts and you can do financial things with them. But the story of where DeFi comes from and where it's headed is something we haven't explored on the podcast yet. I always thought that DeFi was a bit of a misnomer and a better name for DeFi would be open finance. One analogy that always fits with DeFi is it's, um, you know, finance without forms, without applications. So where a typical bank has APIs that you can call on to make transactions and build applications on top, all of those are typically permissioned or require somebody to approve your entry into the financial system. Whereas with DeFi, I think the most powerful thing that even developers in DeFi don't necessarily appreciate to the fullest is that anybody with internet access is able to access DeFi. And this is pretty powerful fundamentally because it means that developers, including ourselves, are not able to police who actually gets to use um, the platform. So I guess when we talk about DeFi as a you know, broad range of financial applications that can range from anywhere between, you know, swapping assets from, from one to another, trading derivatives, borrowing your, your assets, leveraging the assets that you have to borrow more. The applications are pretty infinite, but at the core of it, I like to think of DeFi as open and accessible to everyone. Yeah, I think it's interesting to kind of dwell on that for a second, because uh, I want to get into sort of how DeFi and CeFi are different, but one of the main interesting components is most systems that are open and permissionless that we think about don't have the same profitability that DeFi does. Not that like running a DeFi protocol is super profitable, but like if we think about most sort of 
open access, no control protocols on the internet. It's things like email or it's things like hosting a website or it's stuff like BitTorrent. And like no one makes any money on BitTorrent, right? But it's just like a very interesting thing because with DeFi, like all the things we're talking about, about open permissionless systems, like it was the first piece of the open source blockchain world that I think had any real actual value attached to it back in the early days. So I want to get into kind of some of the differences there. But how do you sort of think about those two things working together in DeFi? I, I think there's, as I said, there's very few things in this world that are open and permissionless and also have money attached to them. Yeah, that's a very interesting question that very few have really talked about before because it's, you know, something that's been taken for granted, right? Like a DeFi project launches, it uh, collects fees, and then it, it also launches a token on top of it which is by itself a revenue generating activity. But at the core of it, you're right. How can open source protocols make money? And DeFi is probably the one of the only places in the world besides probably open source advertising that actually drives value back to the protocol application layer. But the interesting thing is to look at, I think, where the fees are actually going. Is it going to the hands of the developers or going back to the users? And when you peel back uh, what decentralization really looks like, the most robust protocols for DeFi actually rely on this ecosystem of fees generated being paid back to users. And I think this is also part of the you know financial freedom thesis uh, that, that DeFi has, which is if you use a DeFi application, the reason to use it over a centralized exchange is that you can actually be part of an ecosystem that is fee generating to the point that it constitutes almost an economy of itself. You know, you trade on Uniswap, you, you're a liquidity provider in a pool. You can actually earn fees from being a liquidity provider based on the trading activity generated by the people uh, trading within the pool. You know, from a, from a conceptual standpoint, I think someone could say like, well, I go to DeFi, I deposit some USDC somewhere, I generate some yield on it. I go to a bank, I deposit some money into a bank, I generate interest on that deposit. Maybe not much interest, but there's things like certified deposits and treasury notes, and there's ways to generate reasonable amounts of yield nowadays in the centralized financial ecosystem. So from a user perspective, what's different between DeFi and CeFi? And then sort of from a philosophy and architecture perspective, you touched on it a little bit, but how should people be thinking about CeFi, DeFi, and then sort of where we cross over on that spectrum? Yep. I can talk quickly about the user interface and the user experience, how that's different from you know a typical CFI experience. And maybe we can talk more generally about like how fintech apps work versus um, DeFi apps work, just because they're a more direct comparison. I guess from a user perspective, typically the way you would interact with a fintech or, or a CFI type app is by downloading on your phone, loading it with, with some funds, and then you know, being able to like make payments with that directly as you go, or in the case of you know trading via something like Robinhood, you would make an account with an email and a password. Um, you would probably secure it with two FA somehow, and off you go. You you load some funds from your bank account, which you know sits in uh, Bank of America's ledgers internally, and it's sort of a black box as to how the funds actually move. But but they're there. They're reflected on the UI uh, of the screen. And it's a pretty seamless experience from the point of a, a user. DeFi is not quite there yet today. You, <laughs> uh, to, to be frank, you, you know, I think there's about 10 million people um, using MetaMask, 2 million using Phantom today. These people are installing a Chrome extension <laughs> where their funds live on this little tab on their screen. 
They're going to a DeFi app that they're familiar with. This might be anything on Solana, anything on Ethereum. Um, they're swapping funds on a screen. And uh, all this time, they are fully aware of sort of where their funds sit. When I mentioned that it's sort of a black box when you look at CeFi where the funds are actually sitting here, you can run a you know full note to understand the, the full balances across the blockchain and see where exactly your, your address is. Everything is, is open and known to you. So it's sort of this, this entirely open landscape where you can check exactly how much your balances are at any point. And yeah, when you swap, uh, it looks like you have to approve a transaction that gets confirmed, the balances update on your wallet and on the blockchain, and uh, voila, that's how a typical DeFi transaction looks today. Let's hang on this transparency piece for a sec, because information availability is not the same thing as information digestion. Transparency is one of the hallmarks of DeFi, but just because someone technically has the ability to look at a wallet address and see the amount of funds that are there doesn't mean they will. Just because someone can run a full node, which is pretty straightforward, doesn't mean they will. Most people don't run their own full node. So if we look at real-world examples of why this matters, there have been a few DeFi protocols or bridges where funds have been drained from treasuries or insurance funds, and no one's really noticed, even though that information is publicly available in real time on the chain. There was the Terra Luna crash, where a whole bunch of tokens that were supposed to be locked got moved, or the Axie bridge that got drained. Some people noticed, most people ignored them for days. The point I'm trying to get at is this. Information should be available to the public. No one's going to disagree with that. But from a practical standpoint, why hasn't transparency made DeFi more resilient against fraud and collapses? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of it comes back to, why should I care? And to what extent do I trust a counterparty and, or you know, somebody to tell me that the funds are safe versus actually checking it myself? And initially, when crypto kind of started, many people were interfacing with Bitcoin directly through exchanges such as Mt. Gox. And this wasn't necessarily something that people looked into and, and thought to check, hey, let's look at the reserves of this thing, or let's try to audit this exchange and see where the funds are actually going. So none of that was actually happening at the early stage. But then as more and more people started you know, using cold wallets um, throughout the years, the sophistication with which people were custodying their assets became more clear. I think today, I would see centralized exchanges and, and sort of CFI as also a way to custody your assets, right? Even DeFi, you know, when you look at a smart contract, you're actually custodying your funds with the, the contract rather than completely self-custodying yourself. So there's an evolution from how much people actually cared about who or what was custodying these assets. Mm -hmm. And um, this is very prominent when you look at bridge attacks and bridge incidents, because when you actually cross a bridge, who is custodying these assets? And uh, one of the key questions when you talk about the, f the you know, feasibility of multi-chain, and I know we're going very deep <laughs> in into the weeds here. That's what the show's for. <laughs> it's that you're actually, uh, when you look at wrapped assets or bridges, it's typically you know three or four counterparties on the other side who are holding the keys that eventually uh, release the funds of the bridge, right? They're, that are actually holding the, the, the bridge funds. So... Um, how decentralized is that really? I think in a bull market type situation and in a situation where people are sort of moving funds from one another, it's all fun and games, security isn't um, really in the narrative. The The auditability is there, but no one really thinks to, to do that in, in, in the like mania of things. But then as, as we get into this type of market where things are stagnant and, and funds are getting lost more often, I think you're starting to see the level of sophistication increase. And the desire to check these contracts and 
um, the willingness also to to be able to audit what you're putting your money into increase. So, yeah, I think that the trend is definitely shifting in that direction. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit and just sort of focus on you mentioned bridged assets and, you know, the the most commonly used collateral in DeFi is both Bitcoin and Ethereum. But obviously, there's no smart contracts in the Bitcoin network. You can't do DeFi in Bitcoin. So how are people actually taking these assets and using them? Like walk us through a little bit of how wrapping of an asset works, how, you know, a bridge works to a certain extent and, and why these types of collateral are most often used in DeFi. So in the example of wrapped Bitcoin, I think this is uh, actually a very important point where wrapped Bitcoin came from. Um, launched in around the 2019, it was pre-DeFi summer. And it was, I think, the first Bitcoin type asset to hit Ethereum. And uh, ever since then, it has been the basis of collateral for a lot of loans in, in, in ETH. Um, it's also one of the, the most highly traded assets as a denominated pair. A lot of people like to denominate their wealth in Bitcoin. And I think this does show one of the many powers of multi-chain and the ability to consolidate uh, liquidity on, on one chain. So how it works is, I think, quite similar to how you would actually look at how funds are custodied within a bank, except the players that are holding the keys to, to these wrapped assets are, are known and largely audited. So essentially what exists is this wrapped Bitcoin contract that a couple of the larger DeFi players hold the custody and the keys of. So this is between, uh, I believe this has changed recently, but Kyber, Ren, and BitGo were, were the original custodians of Red Bitcoin. You would put your Bitcoin, native Bitcoin, in a contract that is custodied by these institutions, and they would issue a wrapped Bitcoin to represent your holding of Bitcoin on Ethereum itself. And this wrapped Bitcoin would essentially be able to be unlocked on the Ethereum network. And what this means is you can now use this wrapped Bitcoin as collateral for your DeFi uh, loans, your swaps. Uh, what, what really matters is, first of all, how much value does it hold? Will it always trade at the, the price of Bitcoin? And this depends on the, the integrity of, of that bridge itself, the integrity of the, the custodians that you're placing your funds with, as well as whether there are available oracles within the ecosystem to actually tell you what the price of this wrapped asset is. When you look at the sort of failures of FTX, there were a couple of wrapped assets that, that FTX um, had custody to, which were you know relatively small within the Solana ecosystem. So BDC and so ETH, they were called one of the original wrapped assets on Solana. There have been more sophisticated ones since then. But when FTX fell out, there was serious questioning around what value these assets actually had on Solana. So it's a bit of a crisis of confidence around that time. But that's an example of, I guess, trusting a custodian to hold on to, to your native assets. I think it's important to take a step back. We've gone deep pretty quickly. It's very easy for someone listening to say like, wow, DeFi sounds scary. And I think one of the things we've actually seen over the last, let's call it 15 years or so, sort of since 2008, 2009, is that the centralized financial system is actually much less secure than we thought it was. And there's much more fraud that exists in it than, than we thought. And so this kind of goes back from the sort of, like you can say, oh, bridged assets, wow, these things sound risky. It's like they're actually probably significantly less risky than mortgage-backed securities as like an investment class. And that the collateral for a lot of this stuff in DeFi, there are certainly problems with some of the ways DeFi is built, but it is transparent in its issues, 
for lack of a better term. You can, you know, you can look and you can say like, okay, I can see exactly how many entities control this program. I can see if this program could be upgraded. I can, I, I know where this Bitcoin that's been wrapped is custodied. Maybe I trust FTX, maybe I don't trust FTX, but at least that thing is transparent. That is not the case in these centralized finance worlds, right? We we have issues of like, you know, if you look at sort of the 2008, 2009 situations, you had banks spinning up warehouses in Alabama to literally print fake copies of mortgage paperwork that they'd lost the records of and then present that in court as if it's fact, if it's a real original documentation, right? These sorts of things that exist in the centralized financial world also have intense counterparty risk, also have all of these issues of a lack of traceability and transparency. And so I think one of the things just that's that's just worth calling out here is that both centralized finance and decentralized finance have problem sets associated with them. And I think the, you know, from the from my perspective, the set of trade-offs you have to deal with in centralized finance are potentially actually much worse and much harder to assess than those trade-offs that you have in DeFi. Do you think that's kind of a fair characterization of how folks should view DeFi? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most attractive things about DeFi is that you can choose your counterparty. And you know, once one counterparty fails, you can see very quickly. Um, for instance, many of the blow-ups that happened last year could not have happened if they happened within DeFi context. And if you knew who your counterparty was um, at that moment. So I think DeFi actually does shield you from a lot of uh, mishaps and things that people could do to like lose integrity of, of the capital that you're placing. But that also means that the, the average user of DeFi tends to be a lot more sophisticated because you do have to be uh, willing and able to, to understand these differences and choose your counterparties. But that doesn't mean that this uh, can't become more accessible over time as there become more tools to to allow retail users to sort of audit contracts more easily to see through what mechanisms they're actually putting their funds through. Yeah. I think this is actually a big mission of ours, is to, which is to um, make DeFi tooling and audit tooling generally more available to, to users. Yeah, it kind of feels like, you know, in the early days of using a credit card online, it was like a little bit of a weird, scary thing. And like DeFi is, I think, a little bit past that, but we're still in the stage where like, you know, you can be tenuous of certain types of activities and, you know, you have to do more research and you think you need to. Whereas, I don't know, for me, I'll just YOLO my credit card into anything online at this point because like it's probably fine. And if it's not, there's like an insurance fund to to, to cover that on the credit card company side. I want to talk a little bit about the state of DeFi on Solana and kind of what types of DeFi you're seeing built out on different applications. But one of the pieces I actually wanted to hit on first was this very weird thing that exists in centralized finance called the FDIC, right? The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which basically backstops retail deposits. There's been a lot of talk about if something like a true DeFi insurance fund would be possible. Mango Markets had one, and that actually ended up becoming a source of attack for them when someone was able to manipulate you know, some price oracles and be able to extract funds from that insurance pool. How are you thinking about the concepts of self-custody? It's sort of like it's the Spider-Man thing, right? With great power comes great responsibility. But like... There is a world where we start to see a little bit more insurance or a little bit more backstopping of user funds. Do you think that's possible in DeFi? Because at the same time, when it is permissionless and open, 
you can't control who has access to that insurance fund in the same way that, you know, Bank of America might be able to. Yeah, I definitely think that it is a vector that helps retails and even, you know, going a step beyond retail, more sophisticated traders, fund managers view DeFi as something a bit more attractive. I think what we have seen pop up is this uh, insurance fund for protocols that are specific to each protocol rather than this large insurance fund that governs all of DeFi. You have seen some instances of insurance projects that have come up, but uh, oftentimes retailers have to purchase this insurance to minimize their losses and potential hacks. But that's not a great UX because you you don't want to be like, hey, I'm going to deposit uh, to yield farm on this you know banana protocol, but I'm going to buy um, you know <laughs> I'm going to spend like fifty percent of that on insurance. That's not the greatest thing for retail. I think we we are starting to see uh, more larger insurance funds pop up that are generated actually from from fees uh, from the protocol, and I think one of the big signs of confidence uh, for retail is like, well, if I'm gonna put uh, X amount of five, let's say five thousand dollars in this protocol, will the protocol be able to cover uh, me in case I I lose um, this this money? And there can be programmatic rules within the insurance fund itself such that. Instead of you know the FDIC council agreeing to hey I'm gonna I'm gonna um, give you guys uh, max 250k per account in the case of of any uh, losses like you you cover it for for that amount these rules can actually be governed programmatically and and also set by the DAOs that eventually govern each protocol so the um, pseudo insurance fund I guess of, of every protocol looks to be their treasury which is which comes from from their fees. Going back to our first question of how do funds actually flow within DeFi, I think this is actually an interesting use case of how can people protect themselves in, in crypto. And the role that governance plays here is, is pretty critical because if you want to use a protocol, it actually makes sense for you to also be an active participant in, in governance forums where you might push for, for more coverage from their insurance fund. So definitely think that this is something that it makes sense from a protocol level perspective. I'm not sure wh- whether ecosystems should have an ecosystem-wide insurance fund. Then you know you would have to think about how um, each protocol is kind of incentivized to, to provide to that. But I definitely think it makes sense at a protocol level and a wider scale boosts confidence a lot. So. I want to take a turn here and talk about DeFi primitives and what exactly catalyzed DeFi summer back in 2021. I think most people would agree that borrow lending contracts combined with automatic market maker contracts are what made DeFi possible. But if we think about borrowing and lending in the context of TradFi, it's the least interesting thing I can think of. Basically, I give you some money, you hold it for a certain amount of time, you give me some money back with interest. Why was this such a big unlock in the crypto space? The innovation of borrow and lending primitives in DeFi feels like it shouldn't have been big enough to kick off the revolution that it did. What was the problem that this was solving? The need there was actually the quality of collateral. I think what borrow lending unlocked was it necessitated that collateral be valued at a certain price without it having being swapped. So let's say I have $100 worth of Austin token what does this Austin token actually represent? It, it represents, well, first of all, what I can sell for it. But secondly, a derivative of that is what can I leverage these tokens for to borrow against? So what BorrowLend enabled was a market where I didn't have to sell my collateral. 
to borrow something else. So I could leverage 100 of Austin tokens to borrow $50 um, in USDC. And this USDC, I could easily offboard. I could use to, you know, pay my down payment in, in, in real life, <laughs> if you will. But that was pretty revolutionary in crypto and, and DeFi because it was the first time that you could use assets in relative value against each other that didn't mean needing to swap one for the other. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. So after Borrowland, where did we go from there? The other major primitive outside of Borrowland is uh, probably just spot swaps, right? Which is the beginnings of a marketplace. You sort of have liquidity pools where a buyer and seller come to meet and they say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell at this price. And all of that really came through with, I guess, the invention of the AMM, the automated market maker. Instead of relying on you know these ledgers that would hold the price of all the bids and the asks uh, of a single asset and, and match them together, you could have a very simple market making system that priced your asset based on the amount of inventory that was uh, provided by the buyer and the seller. And this is pretty revolutionary because it meant that all of market making could actually be condensed into a single formula, <laughs> um, X, Y equals K. And that kicked off a lot of interesting activity within the DeFi space that meant that you didn't actually need to rely on external market makers to tell you what the price of an asset was. You could simply look at the ratio of asset A and asset B and what was being provided in both and say, okay, asset B is, is more scarce now, therefore it should be valued more. And so this simple formula actually kicked off a lot of DeFi because, uh, at least on, on Ethereum, not a lot of complex logic can be held on chain. And we can go into what this means for, for a chain like Solana, where more logic can actually be encoded on chain and the evolution from that. But one of the two, two base primitives, Borrowland and Spot, came together to provide the basis of a lot more applications on top of that. And so today... If we sort of fast forward, right, like so a lot of these things like an AMM was built for a world where transactions were very scarce and very expensive. And that's no longer the world of blockchain today. So yeah. what are we seeing in terms of like evolutions in this space around sort of new models of doing this thing? I mean, the original AMMs were incredibly impressive pieces of technology, the same way that like a mechanical watch Yep. is like an incredibly impressive piece of engineering and technology, yep. but it's not necessarily the way we should be building all of our clocks in the 21st century. That's right. And looking at the direction of DeFi, a lot of the innovation is actually happening in alternative layer ones, as well as rollups that allow for you know more and more scalability. I think the issue that um, DeFi was dealing with in 2020, 2021 was mostly around scaling. A lot of these applications couldn't be supported by the underlying L1s um, because a lot of these had you know, 10-minute block times. They had extremely high fees. You, as a normal user, wouldn't want to pay $100 to swap $100 into something else, right? As I think the, the fundamental problems of L1s came into play, we would see in the next in the coming like year uh, a lot of innovations in the underlying L1, L2 space that enables uh, more complex products to be built. Today, you know, you as a developer would have 10, 20 different options, whether that's an L2 rollup, whether that's Solana, uh, whether that's Polygon, Avalanche, you know, there's the possibilities are limitless and you sort of choose the trade-offs as you wish. And I think that's also led to a lot of flexibility and freedom as to um, what types of applications that 
that actually served the the needs of traders, the needs of um of, of retailers today. I guess on on the trading and sophistication side, one of the major things that that we actually care about is how do we get to par with the centralized exchange experience without compromising on DeFi, on the actual decentralization piece. And we ourselves have experimented a lot with this. How do we actually build something like an order book on chain? Yeah. Um, how do you build a proper pricing system um, on chain? That you know isn't necessarily dealing with the same constraints as as you were if you were building two years ago. So a lot of innovations today actually tackle efficiency and capital efficiency more so than the actual process itself. Yeah. So when you look at sort of the state of DeFi nowadays, right? You mentioned sort of some of the goals that Drift is working on is sort of getting closer to what a centralized exchange might look like in these in these areas. What are the areas that centralized exchanges are still edging out DeFi and where is DeFi sort of pulled ahead of the centralized exchange experience? In terms of where we've really moved in the last year, I would say liquidity has improved tremendously across the board. In the past, it was hard to do, you know, like a 10K trade on on any layer two. Today, Solana order books are able to process, you know, millions of trades. And I think liquidity has actually gone up tremendously. This is due to the market maker ecosystem being more decentralized. Uh, more and more players are starting to come in and able to provide this um, market making as a service to multiple protocols. So that's a pretty bullish point and where we're seeing a lot of retailers start getting happy saying the, the orders that I used to, to trade on, on somewhere like Binance are starting to get filled on chain as well. Although there are natural limitations to how fast uh, the orders can get filled, I think that's not really the same for liquidity. So there's no actual ceiling for, for liquidity in DeFi, which is why what we're excited about is, is kind of creating this very deep uh, hole of uh, liquidity across all of DeFi, such that it becomes a generally better experience for the average person. Talk a little bit about how Drift is built and what it's sort of trying to do in the market relative to some of the other DeFi protocols. Yep. And the question is always like, how have you kind of evolved and, and moved um, the, the DeFi order book space for it? I would say Drift started off as a very smallish problem to be solved, uh, which was how do you bring derivatives on chain? Initially, it was like, how do we you know, wrap an AMM to support synthetic assets? Once we, we shipped that in our V2, which launched a couple of months ago, we started looking beyond what an AMM could do and started experimenting with an order book type structure that is done fully up on chain. We also looked at how OTC networks typically function off chain where larger transactions are done. And so we built what we call liquidity trifecta, where you have three sources of liquidity within the same system. You have an AMM, uh, the virtual AMM that I was talking about that settles the synthetic orders. You have a, an order book that's held on-chain, powered by Solana, of course, that helps traders essentially get the most precise fill and helps them connect one-on-one uh, -on -one with market makers. And then you have this thing that we call an on-chain JIT, just-in-time auction, that enables you to place a market order that gets filled by a Dutch auction, similar to an RFQ-type system, where uh, makers actually come in in anticipation of your order. This is a very similar system that Robinhood uses, except they're interfacing directly with Citadel. They're sending order flow directly to Citadel as opposed to doing it in a more uh, open context. Here, anybody can be that Citadel agent. 
which is what we're really excited about. Uh, we're kind of creating a more open ground for makers. So this is a lot more complicated than X times Y equals K. Yeah. <laughs> so so how should people be thinking about like layering complexity in with DeFi systems? I think one of the things that is certainly true in the CeFi world is complexity usually is a tool for obfuscation. Yep. And to go back to our mortgage-backed securities analogy, it's let's pile up a bunch of crap and the act of piling it somehow reduces risk. And then if we slice that up in smaller pieces and then we use those yep. pieces together to build something new, that new thing is suddenly rated extremely highly where the underlying assets are actually rated very poorly. And that was like the jujitsu slash fraud that created the mortgage-backed security crisis in 2008-9. So I think there's a lot of folks who are looking around and saying like, to go back to your original point, a lot of the transparency of DeFi, the transparency isn't gone, but it's gotten a lot harder to understand. How do you think about sort of user education to make sure people actually understand what they're trading with when they interact with something like Drift, which is a much, much more complicated protocol than like version one of Uniswap? Yeah, and this is something that is an ongoing problem. I, w I wouldn't say it's a problem. It's more of an opportunity to to really bring to market um, some of these innovations that are coming through. Um, it, it's not it's not just from us. I would say a lot of the a lot of protocols are getting more complex today. Every time a new token launches, for instance, you're kind of seeing um, multiple tokens launch to wrap that token and help uh, it in a governance standpoint. So there's a lot of obfuscation that happens in in DeFi. I would say this is not really a bug. It's it's by design because a lot of what DeFi enables and something that we haven't touched on as much is, is this idea of composability. These primitives that are built on top of each other allows DeFi applications to interact with each other in very complex ways. Um, you know, you sort of have um, spot systems that are wrapped around another protocol's order book um, that use uh, elements of a borrow lending protocol, but. Again, to your point, this feature, uh, while it makes it easier and a better experience for a user, actually makes it harder to track. Where are my funds exactly? And then you you start coming back to this question of like, to the end user, it's it's almost the same level of confusion as um, depositing into Robinhood, if not even harder, mm -hmm. right? So where exactly is that increase in, in UX if um, it's just as hard for a user to track where their funds are, are coming from? I guess what I would say is in a Robinhood situation, I'm not worried that Robinhood is going to lose my money somewhere in that transaction cycle. Mm. Now, maybe I should be, mm. right? Um, but the worst Robinhood does is turn off trading, yep. which is bad, but it's not dangerous in the same way that, you know, again, sort of with great power comes great responsibility. Yep. Like it can be thought of as a system that reduces the amount of trust, but it doesn't reduce counterparty risk. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And this is something that we talk a lot internally about. Ultimately, it's how complex should your product look to users as opposed to how simple it is, how, how simple it is to land a transaction, right? Yeah. Um, and this is something that from a decentralized standpoint, we want to fit as much as we can about each transaction. So for instance, you can actually see uh, who your counterparty is on a transaction. You can see the links to to you know the vaults that are that are holding the money. To a lot of users, this might be an extreme overload of information. But at this experimental stage of DeFi, we do think that it's important to give users the option to be able to to audit something like this themselves, because otherwise, it's like where are they going to find this, right? 
And to actually differentiate ourselves, you need to be able to see that. Yeah. So where do we sort of get this from? The plans for every building in New York are available mm. in City Hall. Mm. And I don't go to City Hall and look at the architectural diagrams of every building before I walk into it. I yep. largely trust that like someone in city government is making sure that this office building I'm about to walk into is structurally sound. Now, yep. that's maybe less of a safe bet in Miami than it is in New York, but like what we're we're talking about here is fundamentally an area where as a society we've said that information availability isn't sufficient. Right. Yep. Like it, it, it's ridiculous for every person to have to be their own structural engineer and yep. evaluate whether a building is safe or not safe. Correct. And yep. I think even when you see a lot of the controversies nowadays popping up around whether it's vaccines or chemicals in food or anything along those lines, it, it is specifically because information has largely been made available that either hasn't been digested and communicated in a way that people feel is accurate or a lot of untrained people are looking at data and drawing the wrong conclusions from that data because they're not trained in how to how to read it. So in theory, I'm right there with you when we're talking about the importance for users of being able to understand everything that's going on within a transaction. At the same time, how do we balance that with the practical nature of how no user can be expected to be an expert in everything nowadays? Yeah, and I think this is a very hard problem to tackle. I really think that it comes with time and, and building trust. Unfortunately, you know, we're, we're not going to topple the C5 world in, in, in a couple of nights, right? I think we, we yeah. need to see sustained periods of DeFi strength, whether that means <laughs> fewer hacks, you know, to be frank, whether it means to see like DeFi ecosystems start to thrive on their own. I think it's, it's actually, um, yeah, a function of, of time um, and the more interactions user has with, with DeFi helps to cement that this protocol is safe. I think what happened last year with a lot of the centralized blowups are actually very powerful for DeFi in the sense that the more these continue to, to happen, the sort of structural integrity of these like C5 buildings uh, start to collapse and then people look for an alternative, which, which takes time. It's, it's not like, a, hey, I'm going to deposit all my life savings into this uh, borrowland protocol right away. Um, it's more so a question of, okay, is this going to hold up? Is this taking you know additional risk than, than what I thought it was? So I do think that as long as we are transparent about what we're actually working on for the user endpoint and continue to stay resilient, that will build trust uh, amongst users and prove why DeFi needs to exist. That's a really good way to think about this stuff. There's this new sort of push for cross-chain DeFi beyond just sort of wrapped assets. And I think what we're seeing is like, you know, the, the Ethereum ecosystem is, is fragmenting and intentionally by design, right? Charting and layer twos are all fragmentation systems that can allow for specialization or they can just allow for stuff to be executed in, in sort of different areas. We're starting to see some roll-up type sidechain type products built for Solana as well. There's a few groups that have spun off something built on the Solana virtual machine that then will settle transactions back to Solana, but has its own sort of coordination layer on top of that. It still feels like though, the cross-chain DeFi is still a very centralized experience for the most part. I, I think there's only been a one true cross-chain thing done in DeFi that was interesting from my perspective, which was, you know, unfortunately, it was the ability to call the anchor contract on Terra from Avalanche. 
And it lasted all of like two weeks before Terra imploded. But it was a very interesting idea where you could have these sort of beachhead contracts that you could interact with natively. And then it would sort of send messages through a bridge and then stuff would execute on the other side and come back. And now in that example, it was very easy because there wasn't a lot of slippage and price movement between those two things until there was. But how are you thinking about if Drift has sort of, if not cross-chain plans? Like I think the the model Uniswap's doing of like, we're going to take our core code base, we're going to put it in multiple places. For me, that's not really cross-chain DeFi. That's just like deploying in multiple areas. It's like, ah, you opened a Walmart, you know, in Chicago, you should probably open one in Detroit. You should probably open one in Cincinnati. You should probably open one in New York, right? That that kind of expansion is a very traditional model. How are you at, and Drift thinking about sort of um, integrated cross-chain DeFi, if that's even something you've thought about? Very new and very, very recent conversations. I think we've really seen a lot of progress in the past couple of weeks. Um, so this is something actually quite top of mind. I'm glad, I'm glad you, you asked. I think it's a uh, very fresh piece of discussion. I, I think a lot of the cross-chain tech is still very experimental. After kind of doing some initial discussions on it internally, I think the the issue that, that we have with these app chain roll-up type structures is that a lot of the security that you get from, from being on an earlier one with a, multiple, a, a very robust validator ecosystem is kind of gone. When you become your your own rollup, let's say if we if we let's say build an, an SVM rollup on an EVM, which would help us you know unlock more ETH deposits, but the trade off there is the sequencing of the blocks would actually have to be done by us initially, and we would basically lose a lot of the decentralization benefits uh, that we would have being on on Solana layer one. The other thing that would be missing during this type of roll-up activity is having this liquidity fragmentation issue where CFI, you know, sort of has liquidity. You can access all liquidity in a single place. Whereas if you had different sorts of liquidity pools for Solana versus ETH versus Polygon, it becomes very difficult for a user to know uh, where exactly they can transact the best. And I think that question is still largely unsolved. I think it's possible that there could be the existence of this uh, in between liquidity layer that multiple chains could tap from, whether that this means you know instantaneous bridging whenever a trade happens or bridging to the user whenever there's demand uh, to trade, sort of um, going back to like a request for quote type model where a user from chain A wants to trade something, but that asset is actually held in chain B. Could you facilitate a cross-chain swap between chain A and B knowing that there is demand on, on chain A? And eventually, you know, that, that sort of looks like the building blocks of, of highways between cities and between countries, right? It's, it's, it's that core infrastructure. Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's something worth exploring, though a lot of the technology is still very new. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely true. So before we wrap up today, what do you see as sort of the future of DeFi? Where do you think we see this going over the next, let's call it 12 months? I know predictions in crypto are very hard, but like, what are the, the technology stacks that you are excited about seeing? What kind of infrastructure systems are getting built now that might end up getting productized later and sort of very much how Drift was a new type of DeFi? What are you guys looking forward into for the, the next phase of DeFi, whether that's like Drift V7 or whether that's, you know, <laughs> something else in this space? I think 
onboarding and um, onboarding tools is what I'm most excited by because I still think that wallet infrastructure is not necessarily there for DeFi users yet. And that onboarding is a very general like suite of tools uh, everywhere from how you actually onboard on a chain, how you deposit in a chain, what your user experience looks like after that. But the first touch point of DeFi definitely is something that, that needs to improve. I'm interested in looking at things like account abstractions where you could, let's say, give authority to your email or to another trusted partner as a recovery mechanism for your funds if you were to interact with a DeFi protocol. So that's natively baked into the protocol level. I think that's that's actually a really big user user experience improvement because that means you don't necessarily have to trust yourself to, to self-custody everything. And there is a fallback. So in terms of onboarding and kind of the user interaction piece with the, the protocol, I'm very bullish on that type of technology. I'm also interested in seeing more interesting solutions for, for liquidity across the board. This is obviously uh, something that we discussed at length about, but DeFi only really works if there's uh, enough money to facilitate the, the kinds of traits that the users are looking for. So I think across the board, we are really looking to see more unique solutions for, for different types of market makers, more sophisticated and diverse group of makers coming in, whether this looks like you know, market making pools where anybody can be a market maker, open source bots where anybody can run. I think that's important infrastructure. And then, yeah, on the cross-chain side, we talked about this earlier, but I'm very interested to see where that comes. I think we're, we're seeing that tech accelerate a lot in the past, like just two months alone. So I think by the end of the year, we should be able to have the foundation for, for something truly cross-chain that goes beyond just wrapping and unwrapping of assets that allows for, you know, bilateral messaging across the board. Awesome. Well, Cindy, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Austin. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.